Welcome to episode 219 of Catching Foxes. We do some follow-up from last week's insanely popular episode about love and respect by drawing out the difference between feminization and emasculation in the church today. Then we pull out some great answers by our patrons when we ask them, what does respect mean to you or what does it look like to you? Finally, we dive into our central topic today, have we forgotten how to tell stories? The contemplative cinema of the Irishman is compared to mainstream superhero movies, and we ask if Netflix plays the role of cinema savior or community destroyer. Check out the show notes for tons of additional content reviews to watch. Special thanks yet again to catholicsocial.media for sponsoring this show for like the sixth week in a row. Thank you. So one of the things that I wanted to do is have a follow-up, Luke, because our last episode about me having sex with Shannon and while I talked to myself, I think that was the most important part of that episode. Got a lot of feedback. Definitely the the part that uh, people really need to pay attention to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your poor wife. If she only knew, she has no idea. No, I play all of these things for her. She has no idea. And then, then, but I play it for her while she's already asleep. So, like, it's in her dreams, but... That's all, it, that's all that matters. Um, no, she so goes, Gilmore, she, I have a lot of weird dreams about Luke. It's very odd. Luke crying about this. Luke crying about that. Luke going, dick, dick, dick. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, ho. Yeah, so funny. No, my wife thought that was Tried. hilarious. And then she felt incredibly uncomfortable every time I talked. But the love and <laughs> respect compo- uh, component of that show was so crazy because I got a text message. At 10 o'clock in the morning from a, a friend of mine who said, oh, my goodness, me and my husband literally got in a fight last night, and it was exactly this stuff. He's like, you don't respect me, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you don't love me, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, and then you talked about it on the show, and I was like, this makes sense. This makes sense. He doesn't show me love because I don't show him respect. I don't show him respect because he doesn't show me love. Bam. And it was just fascinating how that unfolded. And then I started, we just both got a lot of, like, really good comments on it. Um, uh, Cameron Frad called, texted, Marco Polo'd, FaceTimed my wife, uh, and was just talking about that um, that show and how Matt told her to listen. And it was interesting how these concepts resonated with certain people um, that I thought was really good. And one of the things that came up, so... Um, I just wanted to touch on real quick, Tina Rahu, who's a friend of mine here, and she's a parishioner at my church. She had this great question about my side comment about feminizing the church. Um, When I mean feminizing the church in a good way, I mean you hear what Pope John Paul called the participation of female voices or, or women, and that's good. And the church is female. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is a fruitful mother and a virgin bride. So that's good that the church is feminine, but the church is also masculine. And insofar as it is masculine, that shouldn't be made effeminate. You know what I mean? Does that make sense, Mm -hmm. Luke? Like, you don't want to make... I think we all hate when the masculine gets feminine, but we want to see the feminine become fully feminine, the masculine fully masculine. Well, and it's weird, too, because uh, according to Balthazar, if you look at... I'm going to speak for Balthazar, uh, even though I've only read things... Um, please do, please do. You know, one of the things when he when he when he talks about this stuff, he sees that there's no need for the truly feminine because there's no need for recept for um, a receptivity because it is production that matters, and it's 
and it's funny that he uses the word like he talks about it in terms of production. I don't know if he so I, okay. I don't want I'm I'm getting a little bit too into the woods with that. But this idea of when we look at the feminine, I don't think at, we quite often view it through the lens of re, of receptivity. It's done more through the lens of being nice and kind and warm and welcoming, which isn't a bad thing. But I, I think it's 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 almost like we uh, it's almost like this weird cafeteria Catholicism that we do. So we want to make our parishes more. We want to we want to make them more of a of a welcoming environment. So instead of it being a place where people are truly open to the gospel and where there's a hunger for what the liturgy offers, and to really be open to receiving all of that where there's almost an excitement for it it's uh let's have the let's have people greet people at the doors which isn't bad it's not it's not bad in and of itself we uh to take the feminization part of the church that is good but it has a surface level to it because that's what's acceptable right now when it comes to like to the feminine and then the majority of the masculine is just this is just this. It is uh, d- discarded, I think, because of um, enlightenment and in modernity and just like the baggage of all of that. Man, that is awesome. I could be way off. I could be way. No, off. That is awesome. So the I mean, C.S. Lewis has a great line in relation to the divine. All of creation is feminine because we are receivers of the initiation of God. Right. So he's the he's the one that goes forth from himself, which is why God is often characterized with male pronouns and all that stuff. The female is in the binary model the receptive one. And so in relation to divine life and grace, the church is always the bride. She's the one who receives from the bridegroom that which becomes her life. And so when you have a world that is dominated by industry, production, and commercialization, the, the masculine is distorted in that regards, and then the feminine... I think it's disregarded. The feminine is, un, is disregarded, except for... But then we live in, in a great many ways... I mean, I, I would say today, right now, we are discarding... Like, in our educational system, we are discarding boys... In a huge way, and in and we favor women, but in our, I don't know, in our broader culture, we talk about women. But I, I like what you said. Like, we only allow a surface experience of femininity instead of true receptivity. Hmm. I because I think what I'm what I am getting at is happening more on a macro level. And then what you're talking about is just a, 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 a micro example of like here in the United States of America. But my idea is when we talk about the feminization of the church, I mean, making room for women where I mean, it's some people listening to this would be like, uh, all I hear are women's voices in the church. What are you talking about? And in, in many parishes, that's very, very true. But, um, you know, making room for women at the table to have their voices heard so that they can participate. I don't mean women priests, but I mean that their participation in philosophy and theology and in uh, you know pastoral matters and all this stuff, we need to use the gifts of women because men aren't perfect, men aren't everything. 
we need to use the gifts of women in the govern in the in the whole nature of the church. There should be an expression of women and womanhood and authentic femininity expressed throughout the church because the church is primarily feminine in response to the bridegroom Christ. The problem is where the masculine elements are diminished or destroyed or are feminized or are literally just given away to women. So you find priests not being priests and instead they have like you see all these videos of uh, a priest celebrating mass on the altar and he keeps stepping to the side so that a female religious will get up and give the homily or read the gospel but he'll stand there to give it like oh yeah this is like a valid mass even though they know it's not um or illicit or whatever and they'll let them do all this stuff and you you find out like well why aren't you challenging people why aren't you challenging the culture why aren't you challenging this stuff and it does seem that there's a i I don't want to say feminizing because i think that's rude like i think that's an asshole comment to make like uh, oh, you're feminizing religion. I'm making it female. Is being a female a bad thing, a demonic thing, an evil thing? No. What we're saying is the uh, emasculating, meaning castrated. The, um, the masculine Whoosh. elements of life in the church are often castrated today. <laughs> exactly. And so my hope they've is... They've been bobbited. They've been totally Lorena bobbited. Uh, I threw his penis in a field. Uh, That's a deep cut. That's a deep 90s cut. It was, literally. You know you're a 90s baby win. Oh, gosh. So, long story short, I think that there's room without emasculating. Right? I mean, that's the whole point, right? Like, the priesthood is meant to represent the male... The uh, the, Not the maleness of Christ, but their, their maleness in the priesthood is meant to showcase the unique role of Christ to the church, that the priesthood ministers to the church. The other feminization where it's inappropriate, or not inappropriate, but maybe given undue weight, is how everything is about talks and not necessarily about doing things. And Mm -hmm. talking things Mm -hmm. over is a, you know, stereotypically feminine thing, like to get in touch with what's going on in your life, you know, blah, 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 to sit around and talk. And I, I think I said that last time, like, a lot of men's groups want to do something, even if it's just get a beer or watch a game. They want to sit shoulder to shoulder, not face to face. And I do think that that is uh, a, a – I don't know if that's emasculating, but I definitely think that's a feminizing encroachment into different types of ministry, right? There should be times when men are face to face talking about life and you know whatever, but there also needs to well, be I mean, times where people are shoulder to shoulder. He who sheds his blood with me shall be my brother, right? Yeah. Like, we've gone through this thing together. That thing can be as um, simple as we we went to this game. We went and saw this movie. We've, we ha- we've had this experience t- together. And when it has meaning and it's, it's good, um, that can be pretty powerful. So do you want me to take the old lead on this and screw it up? Luke, right, so- I want you to be the man in this relationship, and I'll be your bottom. I mean, woman. Thank God. (laughs) All right, here's the deal. You ain't got no staff, no time, and certainly no budget to make creating compelling content for social media in any way a priority. So what do you do as a Catholic parish? Probably what most parishes do, and you just copy and paste things straight from your bulletin page onto your Facebook page. Man, that ain't no way to live. 
And yet, all the millennials, Gen Xers, and even grumpy, fussy baby boomers are online like 24-7, which means your church can be online like 24-7. And they don't just want you to have a presence online. They want it to be good, like like really, really good. That's why CatholicSocial.media exists. You subscribe to them, and they hook you up with daily social media posts that you can personalize for your parish without their, like, logo all over the stuff. You know, like when you illegally pull stuff from Google Image Search, and it has other people's logos all over everything? Not that I've ever done that. I am as pure as the morning dew. CatholicSocial.media is a Catholic company with Catholic artists, designers, writers, and videographers coming up with the very best stuff for your parish. And you can look like a genius and save time and money. Head on over right now to try.catholicsocial.media. Apparently, the design nerds over there are big fans of Catching Foxes, and they created a free trial with a discount code FOXES for you just to try out their stuff and see if it's a good fit for your parish. That's a free trial with the promo code FOXES over at try.catholicsocial.media. Special thanks to catholicsocial.media for sponsoring this show. All right. It's Luke time. Um, buckle up. It's going to be very needy, kind of, kind of draining. And in the end, you're not sure if you're a better person, but you are kind of glad that I'm around. Okay. So, um, one thing that was, uh, that was, so we had a really great conversation about respect and love and, and in marriages and, and, and stuff. We had a, we had a lot of great feedback on that, but one kind of key thing that I think would be good for us to unpack a bit is the difference between respect and affirmation. Mm. So we talked about respect a lot, but I'm not re- and the importance of it, but I'm not really sure if we ever came up with like a definition of what respect actually is. So mm. how would you like when like from in, in in the Bible when they talk about respect, how is that defined? So in the book, he talks about respect principally through the word of appreciation, right? So his main thing is if a a woman respects a man when she shows in various ways her appreciation for the things that he, that are essential to a man's life, like his ability to protect and provide, to serve, to lead. Um, his own version of insight, right? Women have intuition, you know, all this stuff. And so the principal idea is that the things the man does, the thing that a man does, his achievements, the woman sees, appreciates, and somehow communicates that appreciation. So in one sense, it could be affirmation. In fact, in many ways, it is affirmation. But it's also the uh, expressed through actions like, the woman being close to the man or sharing in things um, that the man enjoys without turning it into a, a talking session. That was a, a thing that I found very weird because I'm an external processor and I like talking things out. But um, I, I do see it in my own life where I want my wife next to me, even if we're just watching TV or we're doing something, I want her in my mm-hmm. presence, but she doesn't have to necessarily be doing the exact same thing as me or talking to me about it, but I want her... In fact, talking to me about it might be draining. But her being around me is uh, energizing, life-giving, right? So there are different ways of expressing that um, as a sign of respect. So much of it comes down to, uh, I appreciate who you are, or I appreciate what you are. Um, 
you know, so they like, I think uh, I feel bad because they listen. And I thought back to like, why, like, when has the respect thing gotten on my nerves the most? And I think at times it's, yeah. uh, I think it has been when I have felt disrespected by my sisters. Because uh, they know me very well. They tend to cut a little bit deep. Um, there's this, um, there's been times where I feel, where I feel like I haven't been taken seriously by them for, you know, or I can't really give my input without, uh, it just immediately being, um, being like a shutdown. And that's, you know, really difficult, I think. And I was like, why is that such a difficult thing for me to handle? And I think it's because it feels disrespectful and, I used to th- and I used to think like, is this because of love? Do I have a hard time believing that that they love me? And I don't think they, I was like, that's not, I don't think that that's really true. I know my sisters love me. I think there's part of it that feels like I feel really bad saying this because th- they listen, they're great, I'm supportive, but this is the only example I have right now. So sorry for throwing you under the bus. Um, but and I, I don't even know if they really mean to. I don't I don't think it's coming from. A, you know, it may not even really. It may be because they respect me that they're um, trying to like put on like equal par, like, like almost like an equal playing field, kind of a thing. Or I don't, I don't know. But it's just, uh, it's something that like I feel like it's at times with the. It's, I, I guess what I'm what I'm trying to get at is I wonder if it's the people that we are the closest to that we often might feel the most disrespect from. Oh well, it, they're the ones that we. I mean, we're so close that their words have the most impact. Always. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that I love about Reverend Timothy Keller, he says this, and I try to remind myself of this every day. He says, "If the whole world says you're ugly, if 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 your mama says you're ugly, if your friends say, oh, you just don't look good, you look tired, you ugly, hey hey, you ugly, and your husband says you're beautiful." That woman would feel beautiful if uh, the whole world says that man is ugly and the wife says, I find you so attractive. That man's going to feel like a million bucks because they're close. They're closest. The intimacy and the intimacy of friendship with your sisters and all that stuff, that brings the impact of those words and gestures and signs and deeds so much more weight. But also the reverse is true, right? So no one can hurt you more than the people who you're closest to, right? And so if the whole world says you're beautiful, but your husband says, look at you, ugly, you're disgusting, you're fat, you're whatever it might be, that'll utterly destroy them, right? Like that's that, and that's why um, the disrespect is such a, a thing to men, I think, because so much of our identity is derived from the outward looking in and to be disrespected publicly in front of other people is or or just to show their contempt or disrespect for you is is one of the things that can wound us so quickly and then for men just acts of you know not hate but a lack of love can hit the woman uh so deeply right like how how could i ever love you how could, who would there have been plenty you? of times where i have i'm a failed at loving my sister so i feel at protecting them you know i feel so it's i'm not trying to like be like they suck i'm, I'm just trying to use that as an example of like yeah. this is kind of go back to the idea of 
the messiness of life. So we we actually uh, put a thing up to all of our friends on Patreon about uh, how are some ways that they try to show respect. And we used a respect because I think uh, it's for all of the reasons we, we talked about last week. My internet's going super slow. Um, it's the hardest one to define out of the two. I mean, even within yeah. even within within scripture, it talks about like you know we have I'm gonna love this patient. It's kind. Love is slow to anger. You know, blah blah blah. And so, just like, what are some real concrete concrete examples of um, how do they like to um show respect? Uh, Diana talked about giving um someone the benefit of the doubt. Um, using manners. I think that's really that's one of the reasons why I I wonder. Like again, go back to the idea of like, uh, um, that uh that manners are really important. You know, and uh, it shows a respect to others. So, you know, I was there's this thing that uh, I heard from my friend, like Tracy, saying how down in the South she was raised in Louisiana, uh, how any time that you introduce a person, you always share two facts about them because it shows that you respect them and you want to be and you want to make the conversation easy to share. Oh, these are some things that you might find interesting. As um, I always thought that was kind of kind of cool. Um uh, this is uh, from um, Moira, I believe I, I uh, pronounced that right. She talks about how uh, she leaves she um, leaves her shopping cart in the designated area, and I try to grab and I'm gonna, and I will use any stray ones when when entering the store to try to show that I respect the employees who has to constantly bring those giant uh, those giant lines of carts in fr- in the parking lot in all in all types of mobile weather it is a hard job and it is also thankless i think that's a really good point like little like small like it's it's kind of funny like tying that into just like you know um basic manners and going out of our way to you know um do something for for another person out of um out of respect for either like who or what they are or just out of gratitude. Yeah, and I think one of the big uh, synonyms that can help us is admiration, right? That's a big one. Appreciation and honor. Like, how do you show that you appreciate someone? Well, you can affirm them, or you can you can show signs of gratitude for them, right? I'm grateful for X, Y, and Z, right? I think those are huge ways of showing respect. And one of the key things was listening that a lot of people on our Patreon page said, right? One of the things that I want to do is just listen, you know, or mm-hmm. listen to the other. The first thing I can think of is listen to the other. I like um Jose the legend Rodriguez's comment. He said, I'll make my wife a cup of coffee, add the sugar and cream just as she likes it. Being a husband who serves his wife, so service is another way. Uh, is a sign of respect. That's just the first thing that came to mind as I'm literally about to make a cup of coffee for her. I tell my kids, um, especially my boys, um, whenever I'm making a pot of coffee for me and my wife, I always I always say, uh, I, I guess I say it to all my kids, but I say, you want to know the key to a happy marriage? And they say, what's that? You know, and they're rolling their eyes already. They're so damn young and they're already rolling their eyes at me. I get no respect. Um, I pour. I said, you always pour your wife's cup first. And so I always put the creamer in my wife's cup and fill it up. 
and then I pour mine. I said, you always put the other person first. Always the other person first. And I like that. Jose, that was his go-to, yeah. right? Um, also, wanna, uh, we, we had a ton on there, um, but uh, this is one that I wanted to bring up as, as well. Uh, this, this is from Shorty, uh, where he says that um, when you lie, that is one of, uh, one of when you lie to... Um, Sorry, I'm going to just say it verbatim. Lying to your brother is the quickest way to destroy respect. I thought that was very good. Very important. Yeah, he had a lot of, he had a lot yeah. of good ones being from a motorcycle club. I know. I was like, oh, oh. But I love this. Um, and this is like, like if you were to ask me, what's your rules for parenting? Never make promises you can't keep or never break a promise you've made. Like that is so huge. Don't ask more than what you can give back to your brother. I love that line. Don't ask more than what you can give back to your brother. That is incredible. That is incredible. Uh, lying to your brother is the quickest way to destroy respect. I think those three are killer. I think they are powerful. Lying versus telling the truth, even when it hurts, um, is a sign of respect, right? I respect you. That I think you can handle it, right? Um, another thing would be uh, Meg Madden. Meg said, um, I think specifically of how I show trust within my marriage is trusting the other's opinions and ideas, i.e. not questioning everything, not suggesting improvements. That is so funny because that is 100% what happened to me and Shannon. Like whenever I meet with couples who are about to get married, I always tell them the story uh, about, I want to say maybe a year or two years into our marriage. Um, I had the kids for the evening. Cecilia was a newborn, Kateri was little, and Shannon was, like, giving me this whole list because she was going to go out with her girlfriends for the night. And she's like, now you need to do this, and you need to do this. And I just put my hand up, and I go, stop. I'm their dad, too. I get to make decisions. And she looked at me, and she's like, uh, yes, you do. Okay. And then she left, and she told me, and she, we've gone back to this several times over the years. She said that was probably one of the most important moments in our marriage because for her, she realized she didn't trust my decisions because those are her babies. It wasn't about her disregarding me or I've done something in my life that shows I don't know how to take care of kids, which actually, in fact, is true. Um, but the whole idea of it was she realized she was disrespecting like, out of her fear of giving up her babies. It was very natural. It was like the first night she ever went out on by herself. Um that that it was just so fearful that she questioned everything. And I'm like, you don't even trust me. I'm the dad. I get to make dad decisions. Let me dad this up tonight. And that's been a huge thing. And she's actually counseled other women who rag on their husbands or nag their husbands or some other ag rhyming verb here that she's like, well, you know, like they get to make their own decisions about how to raise the kids too. Oh, well, he didn't put the kids to bed on time. And he didn't do this and they didn't do that. And it's like, I know, but he did it his way. It's okay. Is the kids alive? Kids sleep, eat, get changed. It's all good. Megan, I thought that was awesome. Yeah, yeah. loved it. Yeah, so um, I think this is the thing we're probably going to continue talking about, just like the fire movement and the anima technica vac vacua. And the year of maturity. Hey, how funny that you and just the- <laughs> how funny that you just said that because I just watched the Playing with Fire documentary. It came out yesterday. 
I stayed up till like 11 o'clock at night, even though I was dead tired, and I watched the whole thing. Great movie. You should watch it. Can we have like a list of all the stuff that we were all about for like two to three weeks? No, I'm still <laughs> in it. What are you talking I know. about? I'm just saying it is classic <laughs> us, though, to get it real is. into a thing. <laughs> you know what I think it is? Jeff Cavins, I think, I think nailed it. So he came to my parish last weekend. After his dad and I, punched him? Yes. And then <laughs> we went to, he had me pick him and his wife up. And his wife oh, is awesome. Nice. His wife is awesome. But he had me pick him up, which was really difficult because Jeff's a big guy. But I got him up. Just kidding. Uh, so I picked him up at the hotel at 7 o'clock, you know, physically lift. Anywho, and I, we had breakfast about an hour and a half. And then I drove him to the airport. And Has he uh, listened to the, to the, um, the podcast? He doesn't listen to this show, oh, and he doesn't listen Jeff. to every. He doesn't listen to every niche about either, but he knows about the shows and plugged them. You're somewhere. killing me, Jeff. I need your <laughs> listens. No, but here's the funny thing about Jeff, right? So he's sitting there talking, and what he does is like every two months, he dives into a topic like obsessively, and he gets all the skills he can about it, and then he's able to have conversations with people. In that field, like he learns all the meta language, he tries to do it himself, blah, blah, blah. And then he um, introduces them to Jesus Christ through that, right? Like he totally uses it as a tool for evangelization. But in one of my fire podcasts that I was listening to recently, she interviewed a guy who calls himself an ultra learner, and he wrote a book called Ultra Learners. And on my scribbed, you know, you pay one fee, $9.99, you get unlimited access to all their audiobooks, they had the ultra learners on there. So I downloaded it, and I got about four chapters in. And Jeff is talking, and I've heard him talk about this stuff, so now we're talking about Impressionist paintings, and Jeff is now painting, and he's talking about all these things. He's talking about Dayton, and he was in Dayton, Ohio, at this famous art store. Are you familiar with this? What art store? I, 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 he didn't say the name, but he's like, it is a really well-respected artist supply store in Dayton, Ohio. Huh, and he's like, what do you know? He was, he was given a talk. And he said, oh, I'm going to pop into this art store. Maybe they have a little thing. He, this, some famous woman in Switzerland asked if she gave him a present, and it was, like, amazing. So he wanted to show her respect by sending her a present of one of his paintings. But his paintings are, like, terrible. And so he goes into the store, and he's like, hey, I need, um, I need a crate to ship one of my paintings out. And the guy's like, whoa. He's like, yeah, 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 I'm uh, sending it to Switzerland. And he, he realized... Like, subconsciously, he was trying to impress this guy, right? He's like, yes, I need to ship one of my paintings off. Uh, a woman wants it, or a connoisseur wants it out in Switzerland. And the guy's like, oh, my goodness, do you know? And he, so they start this huge conversation. And Jeff so studies this stuff that he's able to have these meta-language conversations. And the guy goes, you know, blah, 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 the CEO of this company. And Jeff goes, the paint company? He's like, yeah. Uh, he's in town tonight for an art showing. I'm taking him to dinner afterwards. Would you want to come to dinner with the leading artists in Ohio along with this CEO of this world-renowned company that supplies the finest paints for artists? And Jeff is like, wow, all because I'm shipping one of my crappy paintings. <laughs> and so we start talking. I go, Jeff, I think I understand you now. And he goes, what? And I go, you're an ultra learner. You're one of these people who just every two months you just soak in one subject obsessively. And he goes, oh, yeah, ultra learner. I read all about that. And I go, did you? And he goes, yeah, I did this whole thing on rapid learning. And I was like, did you rapid learned rapid learning? Like, this is getting ridiculous. But that's what he did. And I said, you know, that might be what me 
and Luke do with certain things. Like everyone, I think fixates can you know go, oh that's really cool, mm-hmm. and then you know mm-hmm. the fads and stuff. But like for me at least, him him reading and doing all that stuff for me it's YouTube. Like I literally watched a hundred or two hundred hours worth of YouTube videos on Reformed Protestant theology. And then I got into woodworking, and then fire, and then, but I haven't <laughs> left <true>. that. St- <laughs> but I'm still trying to woodwork, still trying. Emphasis on trying. I still argue with Reformed Baptists, and uh, I'm faking firing. So you know, you have all of these things. But I think that that might be a better clue. At least that's the positive spin of it. I'm not just that's a curious true. person who goes from no. flower top to flower top like a butterfly who is yeah. uh, filled with cocaine. Ooh, 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 Dom Petty. Flutter your damn ooh. wings. Flutter your damn wings. <laughs> I, I had a, there was this uh, one comedian that I, that um, I love. Uh, this is Jonah Ray, who uh, like had a joke where he says, you've never, I'm a really done coke till you've had a 20 minute conversation in, in an LA bathroom with a guy about Tom Petty. oh that is funny that is funny luke you sent me a text message of a question that literally has bothered me all day i have been trying to figure out the answer to this question it was simple what example of pop art has genuinely changed or affected your life and i have been trying to think of like Pop art, popular consumption, art for the masses. What pop art has genuinely changed or affected my life? I even asked that to Shannon. I and I don't necessarily mean you know when I ask that as in like oh I really like this as but it's more just uh, like the content of this has moved me. Yeah, and I am a different person now because of this. And I keep going back. So then what I was doing was I would say, okay, here are my top five favorite movies. And I would go through the movies and I would say, I love those movies as movies, but I don't think The Godfather Part 2, Part 1 changed my life or genuinely. Like, it moved me. Um, You know, Godfather Part 3, where Al Pacino is going to confession, like, that part was brilliant and beautiful and amazing. Um, just wish that the two cousins weren't in love, but anywho, (laughs) um, I don't know what, so how would you answer that question? I am so fascinated by this question. Uh, Um, I actually, okay, so it's tough. So how do you describe pop art? Cause I don't know if I would necessarily say that that the Godfather is pop art, but the Godfather is also definitely pop because it's one of those things that it's both critically acclaimed and really, really good. Yeah. Um, but so much of what we consume actually is, you know, there is this uh, film podcast that I like. I've talked about this a bunch here, uh, the um, Garrison and um, Leach podcast. And when they go into when they go into their, like favorite movies, there's always a few that I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about, you know. And and um, so I would say probably the Godfather. You know, there's uh, a line in there that I don't necessarily agree with. But it's interesting. I actually think it kind of ties into the whole uh, respect part. That's towards the end of the middle, um, not quite the beginning of the third act, but the end of the second, I I would say, where it's an older godfather talking to his – this is godfather part one – talking to his son, Michael. 
and he says, uh, uh, um, "Gosh, how does he put it? Um, men can never, be, men can never be careless. Children and women can, but but like um, men cannot." And then he says um, something about um, always. Do you spend time um, with your family? Because it's basically like he's dying, and he knows he's at the end of his life. And he's trying to share uh, bits of wisdom with 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 his sons, but to take over his crime em- empire. And he tells them, "Do you spend um, time with your family?" And he's like, uh, "Yeah, pop." He goes, "Good," because a man who doesn't spend time um, with his family can never be a real man. Um. That uh, I did not really grow up at all with this idea of um, this is what it means to be a man. Um, because yeah, totally. I, like my dad just never really brought that up for the most part. I mean, I th- I think he would a bit. It was c- kind of more like this is what you don't do. Um, like you know, obviously, uh, real men don't hit women. Different things like like that, but but there wasn't this idea of like you can't be careless, like you you have to, and so that was such a um, thing that challenged me in a good way. And I think about that a lot of like when I, and again, I don't think it's um right to say that um um that women can can be careless. I don't think that's fair or right at all. I don't think the film's trying. It's trying to show this, you know, like old this like old world view but really this idea of like don't be careless that's actually really dangerous and um i've thought about that a lot and you know in my own life when i I look at things that i've really screwed up it's quite often because i was careless i was careless with a person's heart i was careless on my finances i was careless with my attitude towards you know insert any number of important things here when things typically went wrong for me it was due to uh, carelessness on my part, and so that's one thing I think that has re- that has kind of changed me, and it has always really, really, uh, really stuck with me. Also, Johnny Cash. There's before Cash, <laughs> and there's after Cash. <laughs> What's your favorite Cash? Uh, cocaine Blues. It's a good song. And how do you think that affected you the most? Why? No, 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 no. That song didn't affect me at all. I just, uh, um, I listened to a lot of, uh, after, uh, my breakup back in 2000, uh, what was, gosh, what was that? 2005 when we were like the, oh, like over that summer. That's when I started to listen to a lot of Johnny Cash. That's so, funny. um, I was, I was into it before. I think the film had either just come out or it was about to. But I'd already kind of like dipped my toe into the Johnny Cash um, waters, but and I was also I'm listening to God's gonna um cut you down today in the car, uh, and I put it on there about three or four times, and I almost started crying while listening I to it. I Love that song. Put that on repeat for a, for a bit, and then watch the music video after that, and you're, it it like it moves you, and especially when you think about like the. the State of the Church here in America, the uh, you know John, all of the Me Too stuff, the uh, yeah John Chris stuff. This idea that like God's gonna cut you down, like you cannot hide from Him. Um, I was yeah. like, oh, and just wait, and like that, he like he sings it from a place of like he this man he lived it, 
He tr- and I yeah. love the fact that like he lived like he lived his faith without having not at the expense of just being a nice guy. Yeah, and I like that. Yeah. Well, for me, I have been ripping through my brain trying to figure this out. I start with like, what are things I like, and then how have those things affected me or genuinely moved me? And I viewed moved me as like changed something about my life like my life was different afterwards and so the most i could think of was the movie braveheart yeah that's true yeah now braveheart is very pop it was made for you know big audiences and all that stuff with big celebrity mel gibson and all that but the arms (laughs) but the themes of freedom and bravery and hope and optimism were are so like they're almost inhuman you know like of course this character is a hollywood character no one could be this borderline you know flawless but his character was the perfect hero in a lot of ways because he loved this one woman passionately and an act of random tyranny and violence took her away from him and that was enough for him to say okay I can't live peaceably in this world because even innocent, beautiful things are are just whisked away and destroyed. Now that mine is lost forever, I can't, I can't um, let that happen to other people. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. there, th- this situation has become. You know, you can push men, but this is the breaking point. Um, and there was a scene in the movie where he's arguing with his best friend. And his best friend is like, why do you keep doing this? It's not going to bring back the memory of your dead wife. And, uh, and he, you know, they punches him or whatever. And he says, uh, what was the line? He's like, do you think she sees you? And he says, I know she sees me and she sees you too. And it was that, that notion of like, what, what, yeah. what, what are we going to do? Like, honestly, like, what are we, what are we going to do? Are we just going to say, if we keep our heads down long enough, eventually the British will be cool with us. Or are we going to hit a point where the tyranny becomes so gross that we we have an ideal? But it wasn't just violence for violence sake. It was devoted to an ideal that caused virtue. So, like, the closer the men became warriors, the more they became virtuous at least that was the idea and then you have until he sleeps with the princess at the end yeah which is so stupid so annoying that i i get why hollywood did that but it totally destroyed the character it does because all he sees is his wife as he's dying and the axe is coming down he sees her passing through the crowd he's like oh i just slept with that princess while i was in jail she might be lying yeah well i mean they kind of lead up to that but uh i see her strength in you um but with that whole movie, the whole, I mean, it's so incredibly, like, inspiring for, you know, you feel like you want to go chop down a tree and, you know, fight the English. The English will do money. Um, but, like, when he screams freedom and the bagpipes swell in the background, when I first, probably the first ten times I saw that movie, I cried every time. Yeah. You know he what marries I her in secret so the prima nocta wouldn't affect anything. A good Catholic wedding. 
a good Catholic wedding with, <laughs> with like a Franciscan Just friar kidding. or something. I love yeah. it. I love that movie. Which were they in Ireland changed. during that time period? Who? Oh, the the Franciscans. I don't. I don't. I mean, the whole. Th- it's that is one of those weird movies that is very historically in in accurate, while in spirit being a hundred percent accurate. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, it's awesome. So, and I think a book, a book in pop art would be Jordan Peterson's Rules for Life. But one rule in particular, like I, I haven't revisited the book since I first read it when it was like this pop culture phenomenon kind of thing. But it was, uh, there's one line, which is the title of a chapter, and it's always tell the truth or at least don't lie. And lying to get out of mistakes, problems, troubles, what has always been a thing of mine that I have always gone to confession for, work for, talk with my confessor about. And it was just like a principle that was stated so simply and so powerfully that you're like, huh. And it helped that it was said right alongside Bishop, or, uh, Pope Benedict talking about why free speech is so important. And he says, when you clamper down on free speech, you don't, you, you get no speech, right? Like you don't, like people become so guarded that words don't matter anymore. And then that's why there was a group of, I think they were Hungarian dissidents who rebelled against the, the communists. And their role was they, they all swore an oath to never tell a lie as a way to stand against the, uh, the, the laws against free speech. That's really interesting. Like, yeah, uh, that's powerful. Because, you know, um, sport athletes are uh, notorious for not saying anything. Because if they say something bad, they'll get um, ripped apart in the press. They don't want to create any almost any um, sorts of controversy, so they end up um, saying nothing. It's just you know we got it. Like we're just focusing on on the next game. All you can do is focus on one game. You know, like things that like just don't. There's a bunch of stupid platitudes that right, d- that right. really don't mean anything. That's interesting. Do you do you think pop art like? Can them because you know so like I wouldn't consider half of the Coen Brothers films are not pop art. Half of them right. are, or right. they're just a vanilla enough to kind of people mm-hmm. can get like True Grit. Yeah, yeah. True yeah. Grit. Uh, I feel True like Grit. was an incredible movie. I loved that movie, and in a lot of ways, it's my favorite western of all time. However, uh, like it's very Coen Brothers. But the, I think there's enough depth to it. See, the problem with pop art is if it has too much depth, you lose your audience. Yeah. Or I would say that I'm a No Country for Old Men is another I'm good example. Yeah. Like, all Man, really good. That was a hard f- movie. That was all, a hard movie to watch. Yeah. All good films, Ugh. but, like, not inside yeah. on Lou and Davis, which is, like, brilliant and fan and fantastic and should have won Best um, Picture. But, like... So, like, why why I bring this up is um, there's a film that came out uh, called The Irishman. I, I saw it over the weekend. It is a little over three and a half hours long. And it is directed by Martin Scorsese, uh, And it stars uh, Father James Martin, friend of the podcast. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. He's oh. in, like, he's in two scenes. Uh but the the main stars are Al Pacino and and um, Robert 
De Niro, Harvey Keitel, and Joe Pesci, which is his first acting job. He came out of retirement just just to do this movie. And it um, there's um, I start to wonder if it's kind of one of these of like it that is a film that ten that ten years ago would be in every um, movie theater a, across the country. Everyone would be going to see it, and we would all would be talking about it. But instead, it's going on to Netflix, and it's only in a couple of movie theaters a, a across, the, across the country. And it probably won't become a real part of the cultural like zeitgeist or part of the cultural conversation until about like a week or so from now when it is released on um, – on, um, on, uh, on Netflix, and I think this is the linchpin moment where every, there's going to be there's going to be before and and after this, where I think now the bulk of all the big stuff is going to be on it will be online as opposed to in the movie. It's it's already been going this way for a long time, but like this is the moment where I think it really does shift because a lot of movies that were primarily on Netflix, you had a you had a I think one I think one Oscar winner. Uh, I can't remember Manchester by the Sea if that won or not, but that was that was an Amazon film. You um, had Roma was a Netflix film that was nominated for Best on Picture last year. But for the most part, they're kind of your bigger. Um, you could say they're pop culture, but they're more indie films, like big indie art house films. Um, th- and this is the first really big, big, big movie that's going to be online. And I think it's going to change uh, it is like how we consume certain kinds of pop art. Yeah. And uh, there's a quote from Alan Moore. Al, uh, Alan Moore is a comic book writer uh, and and author who uh, created um, the Watchmen comic back in the 80s. He wrote some of the most, uh, I mean, really, he kind of like shaped Batman, like the Batman that we enjoy in a lot of our movies and stuff it comes from his his takes on Batman. Would you agree with that? Yeah, the Dark Knight rises, uh, the Dark Knight returns, all that stuff. Those are all Alan Moore's things. And the Watchmen, stuff like that. Which more or less broke his brain. Uh, so he has a sick quote that's that he wrote uh, like two years ago, I think. And it says, I think the impact of superheroes on popular culture is both tremendously embarrassing and not a little worrying. While these characters were originally perfectly suited to stimulating the imaginations of their 12 and 13-year-old audience, today's franchised Ubermenschen or something... Um, aimed at a supposedly adult audience, seem to be serving some kind of different function and fulfilling different needs. Primarily, mass-market superhero movies seem to be abetting an audience who do not wish to relinquish their grip on A, their relatively reassuring childhoods, or B, their relatively reassuring 20th century. The continuing popularity of these movies, to me, suggests some kind of deliberate, self-imposed, state of emotional arrest combined with a numbing condition of cultural stasis that can be witnessed in comics, movies, popular music, and indeed right across the cultural spectrum. The superheroes themselves, largely written and drawn by creators, 
who have never stood up for their own rights against the companies that employ them, much less the rights of a Jack Kirby or Joe Siegel or Joe Schuster, would seem to be largely employed as cowardness compensators, perhaps a bit like the handgun on the nightstand. I would also remark that, save for a smattering of non-white characters and non-white creators, these books and these iconic characters are still very much white supremacist dreams of the master race. In fact, I think that a good argument can be made for D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation as the first American superhero movie and the point of origin for all those capes and masks. Ooh. Okay, so he's kind of a douchey, pretentious dude. I mean, how could you? How could how could you write the? How could you create out of nothing a thing like Watchmen yeah. and not be somewhat of a pretentious douchey dude? <laughs> but is he wrong with some with some stuff in here? Um, and I'm gonna we're gonna do our best to kind of tr- tie this all t- together. I think there is um one line that really strikes me and it's the continual popularity of these of these movies to me suggests some kind of deliberate self-imposed uh state of emotional or um arrest so we've done multiple reviews of a lot that we've done a lot we've done like a lot of marvel stuff we are self-proclaimed due to love marvel i think that's that is that is well documented. We cry. We both cried during Endgame. Did some more than others? <laughs> I kind of <laughs> sobbed. Did Endgame change you? Is there before Endgame no. and after in terms of like your like life? No, no. no. I would say so. No. Myself. I don't think he's wrong when he talks about the self-imposed state of emotional arrest. And I don't know if, like, I don't think it's bad. I, I like the fact that all the Marvel movies connect. I think that's so cool. I think it's, and I, I part yeah. of the reasons why I was crying was it was just such this weight of, like, I just love this. This is just, like, so much fun. And they did it. And it just works. And it's great. And it's powerful. And it's good, and like it's really, really good ice cream that I've enjoyed for ten for you know ten years, and I'm having the best like Sunday out of all right now. And it's all coming together, and this is really cool. But if I'm being honest, I also almost know that I'm kind of suspending my adulthood just a little bit to engage in that. It's a little bit of like yeah. I'm going out to play ball with all the guys right now on a Sunday afternoon. You know? Yeah. It's not bad, but you can't unlive your life doing that, and that can't be your life. And the danger, I think, right now is that when you look at things like um, like movies, which I would argue are still the predominant cultural like it's a thing we all do. We all go and see um movies. Very rarely do you have anyone who doesn't go and see movies. That the movies are becoming more stuff like this where it's just a, it's it's like a almost like a break from reality as opposed to this important cultural ex, ex, 
ex- experience. Some people have argued, even back in the 50s and stuff, that it was like never real art. It was always this break from reality that just made people dumb. People on the left and actually on the right. So it, it was... Uh, and I guess... What I'm asking you is, um, do you think there's a danger to this at all? I, I don't know what a, which one of the reviews was, but where we said, um, I said, I find it so funny that Doomsday and like all of these, uh, Bane and all of these different Batman characters and Superman characters and comic book characters are from storylines, principally from the 90s. And then you started laughing. You said, isn't it great? The whole world revolves around our generation. <laughs> it's all for us. It's all for us. No one is reproducing the storylines from the 1960s. It's all for us, right? And it's really funny because in a way it's like, well, this is when the medium really, in, in a real way, the medium of video games and comic books had a huge impact on a certain group of people in you know in the 80s and 90s and now those people have cash because they're adults and so they're going to market to them with a nostalgia and that nostalgia is going to be the biggest triggering mechanism for the biggest movie uh franchise in world history the marvel cinematic universe right like i think uh, and this is what bridged our conversation with the movie The Joker or Joker. Um, if it was just a study of one man's descent into madness starring Joaquin Phoenix, I think we would have liked the movie and respected the movie. But The Joker is now a billion-dollar movie. It is officially in the billion-dollar club as the highest-grossing R-rated movie of all time, Deadpool, only made eight hundred million, and that was the previous winner, and yet it still hasn't gone to China. That's without Chinese dollars. And when you start to look at Joker, like why is it that popular? Well, it's because it's tied to the comic book guy. Oh yeah, like I don't yeah. think because there's tons of Descent into Madness, rated R, psychological thrillers, whatever. But this is it's the freaking Joker, and oh my gosh, there's Bruce Wayne, and his fingers are in his mouth, and that's gross, and there's Alfred, and he's not doing anything. So the whole idea of that movie, it still serves it's, – it's interesting because um, Todd Phillips – right, not Todd Phillips. What's his name? Todd uh, – No, it's uh, Todd Phillips or yeah, it is Joaquin Phoenix Phillips. is the actor. Todd the, Phillips is the director. Yeah, the director. He said um, – someone made a comment to him like, why, you know, you're, made, you're famous for all these comedies. Why are you making a superhero movie? And his quote was – in in today's world, in order to tell a real story, it has to be a superhero, or it has to involve like the super, these superhero stories. And so for him, it was like he wanted to tell a real story about society and critique society, but he had to use the Joker in order to do it, right? And he had to develop those themes and stuff. And I thought that was super fascinating, and I think that speaks to Alan Moore's thing. It's like. Isn't that embarrassing that we have to use a 12 and 13 year old demographic you know, yeah. medium in order to tell our stories? But it's weird though because it's this didn't just happen. And it's and right. I don't I mean this I don't think it was Kevin Feige's intent with the MCU to like change mo- like 
the detective change yeah. movies. I think he just wanted. I think they just wanted to make a lot of money, obviously, and they wanted to build a shared comic book universe in films. Yeah. And um, so I don't. But I don't think you can unnecessarily blame them for what's going on. And I'm. And I am. I'm not saying that Marvel is like blameless for all this. But if you think back to it, when we were in college, was when they started seeing more franchises. Look at things like Star Wars, Pirates of the Caribbean, two, three, four films put out in the span of like five to six years. And then just reboot yeah. after reboot after reboot. TV shows on the main into movies. Um, they were just mining everything in, you know, um, the aughts. And they end up with yeah. these like, sh- you know, like sh- um, shared universes that people um, really uh, like. Um, so it's um, like this goes back. I mean, and then, and then you can even trace that back to um, things like Indiana Jones and Star Wars and Ghostbusters that, you know, people back in Hollywood, when those first came out, there were some who were like, this isn't good. They're just everything's now just becoming about uh, like um, action stuff. You know, so if you look at a film, uh, yeah. take uh, take Ghostbusters. It's, you know, is a comedy, but it's done in this, like, 80s action kind of action like sci-fi thing, you know? So it just kind of like how the Joker is that thing on, you know, like superhero. This is just, if you look at a, if you um, look at Ghostbusters, it's kind of like an early iteration of that where this is a comedy in the vein of, like, a sci-fi action film that 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 was popular during that, during that time period the the cinema is so dominated by corporate interests that who would go to the movies the movie theater anymore to watch a three and a half hour long movie which is what the irishman is and um i went and listened to um martin scorsese uh in, in scorsese's interview and he kept saying things like um I am so happy Netflix stepped up when Paramount bailed on film on funding it and Netflix stepped up. He said he couldn't have been more thrilled. He didn't care about the theatrical. Actually, he cared about the theatrical release. He tried to get it in more theaters. Um, but he said he loved working with Netflix because Netflix came in with the money and the and and that's it. They gave him zero artistic direction. He didn't say anything. They didn't try to intervene in the story. They didn't try to say things like maybe do it this much, maybe do it that much, um, or this way or that way. And so what his whole thing was, when Netflix walked in, I couldn't have been happier because I had the artistic freedom to execute a movie. And I knew I could make the movie as long as it needed to be. Yeah. And it was fascinating because uh, the critique that Scorsese says to tie this to comic books was that when we look at comic books, um, these comic, uh, comic book movies that are so popular, he says they're like an amusement park. He calls them amusement park films. It's not real cinema. But then he goes even farther and says it's chasing away real cinema, and he calls them animated films. And he says it's like a theme park, and we're losing narrative. And he said movies, when I was growing up, movies used to be films, but not anymore. And he said, we have a moral obligation to make narrative films. And that was his interview with the BBC. And a lot of people have criticized him for that comment. But his whole thing is like, 
the big budget is canceling out meaningful things in the movie theater. People are going to keep going to the movie theaters. They want they want to have a fun experience. They want to immerse themselves. But if we don't have enough good narratives, then we can't experience these things. We can't together as a culture. Mm-hmm. Instead, what we're experiencing is the whiz bang. And then he said, okay, well, if everyone's going home and watching Netflix, then I'm going to partner with Netflix and we're going to release the exact type of movie that we wanted. And he said one of his biggest things about the movie is um, people say, what, but why is it so long? And he says, because I want you to slow down. The story is worth your focus. Take your freaking time. And then he said, the experience of watching the movie is supposed to be more. And then he stopped and he goes, it's supposed to be almost contemplative. Yes. Yes. Watching this movie. Yes. A hundred percent. And that is, uh, it is a, it's a thing to, um, there's a lot in there that, uh, spurs contemplation. Oh, I don't want to give, I don't want to give like too much away, but this is a thing that I think people have, uh, talked about at length about this film. So it's, so it's out there and it's not a spoiler. He did this in a few of his earlier films. And by a few, I mean, I did watch mean streets a couple, a couple of um, weeks ago. And he'll have a thing where like, he'll have, you'll uh, have like a new character. He will like freeze the frame and then have like in text, a quick fact about that character. And in the Irishman, he will have um, their name, date that they died, and how they died. And the point yeah. is, it really makes you like stop and think, like, holy crap, all these gangster dudes died awful, violent deaths. Or all these dudes died. That all this stuff they were trying to do, all the things that they were, tr- that, you know, all these guys were like working on, all ends in death. Because that's a one thing, and for like, and for the bulk of them, they were pathetic, ugly, awkward deaths. Ugh. And Ugh. you don't really like one of the things I do like not like about Endgame is, and, and there are things that I like for what it is. I really liked it, and for what, and, and I love the experience of it, and I'm glad that the MCU exists, but. I wanted to see I would have preferred more space like with these characters. I wanted to see like the Joss Whedon version of Infinity War as opposed to perhaps what we got. And I, I, I think what also scares me about this is when you look at how so like one thing that people could kind of come back at with all this is they could say that, oh well, it's just on TV now. And so you just like have your TV. But the thing yeah. about how we consume TV is it's four, five, six, it's like it's binging, and that's not yeah. that doesn't lead to that doesn't lead to contemplation. That just leads to like a vague like satisfaction and numbness. Yeah. So let me equate that with something that I did in the church, and something that's kind of that it literally got brought up today. So, um, I when I first started working at Saint Anthony of Padua as the coordinator of adult formation and evangelization, I the first class I taught was called Catholic Evangelization One Hundred and One. And I did it over five weeks, and it was a, an hour and a half class over five weeks. And I had about 40 people that came to that class. And I taught it um, during the daytime on Mondays. About 40 people showed up, and uh, in the first class, I kind of called an audible. I had all this content, and you know, it's the first time I'm teaching an adult faith formation class as an adult faith formation leader. 
And I kind of called an audible where we did opening prayer, and I said, I want everyone to go through and say your name. And these are mostly empty nesters that were in the room. It was the middle of the day. And I said, I want you to say your name in the name of your adult child or friend who left the Catholic Church. And, or, or if that doesn't fit you, someone in your life that you want desperately to convert, like the main person. And they went through, and there wasn't a dry eye in the room at the end because they're all crying. My sister, my sister left. My adult children, you know, they hate the Catholic Church. I don't know why I love it so much and all this stuff. I feel like they hate me. And it was this heart-wrenching thing. Forty people we went through. So as you can imagine, most of the class is over. And then we start talking about the principles of of evangelization, but it all leads and is grounded in prayer. But the following week, I had them pray for, or at the end of that class, I had them pray for uh, the courage to speak to them about God's love in their life. And then the next week, we would check in, and we would say, I would say, okay, I want someone to share with me an experience of how they told someone about God's love. And then people began sharing. The first week, almost no one did it. Then on the third week, I said, all right, everyone. And this one woman was crying because her adult daughter, I can't remember what it was, but it was something horrific, like got an abortion mm. or uh, is using mm-hmm. again and relapsed, something something like very catastrophic. And she had mentioned her name, but this is just one woman among 40. And I said, what's her name? She says her name. And the whole group starts praying for her right there. We all just take about 10 minutes, and we're praying for the conversion of this woman. And then I said, everyone, for this next week, we're all, every single day when you wake up, you are to pray for, we'll just call her Mary, pray for Mary's conversion and pray that her mom, Susan, can have a conversation with Mary. And then on the fifth week, she had a breakthrough. I offer, and it was beautiful, and, we, and there was like a bunch of little stories like that. I offered the exact same class the following semester, but in a day. And we did all five all at once. It was like the version of binging. And it was a to- it's not that there wasn't cool stuff that happened, but it was a totally different experience. Mm. And I realized I don't have any stories to share because we don't have any time to process this. Yeah. I'm just spewing a bunch of stuff out. And the thing that made it interesting was I had a youth group from, uh, from Sacred Heart and Conroe. They came down because the, one of my former teens was their youth minister, Ryan. And he brought 20 teens, and I had a bunch of baby boomers. And I said, all right, I want everyone to pair up. Teenagers, you pair up with each other. Baby boomers, you pair up with each other. And then you're, you go around and get into a group of four, and you share your testimony. And then I left to go get everyone's lunches, come back. I mean, people are crying. Older people are praying with the younger people, all this stuff. And the younger people, they did a survey when they got back to Sacred Heart, and he said, what was the best part? And they said, when the older people shared their lives with us. And the amazing thing is, when we don't have that connection, if you were watching Michael Gormley five weeks in a crash course in your home from, you know, Saturday morning, and you just got all my DVDs or all my videos on YouTube, and you watch the exact same talks, you would have almost zero experience. You might learn some stuff, be moved a little bit. But the two different experiences, the binge experience and the drawn-out experience, created radically different things. And that's the thing I think that it's new and that we're losing with binging, but now we're binging oftentimes alone or just with one other person. So it's not this shared cultural experience. Well, and when I think back to like, uh, again, I know that a lot of people don't uh, like the show, but whatever. Um, Game of Thrones. 
Oh, it was on. I would, yeah, the absolutely. The best part absolutely. was like my favorite part about it was when uh, like uh, was when like we talked about it, or when uh, like me and my buddy uh, uh, Dom and uh, Dom and uh, Dom and Steve would um, talk about it, like before and afterwards because because we watched the last two seasons to to uh together and we even had like a death pool with like a couple of like our friends and i'm talking to our buddy i'm with john about like that was really really fun that doesn't happen when you can binge it i have i had like we i did we did have like a stranger things um watch party here that was pretty fun where we watched the first two episodes but um i think also like why this um shoot i had a good point oh when was the last time you were in a room at a house and a person pulled out a guitar, played a piano, and you all just stood around and you just like sang together. And yeah, it wasn't never. on Praise and Worship <laughs> Months, songs. Years? It was just like Oh no, the last time it was Praise and Worship. Yeah, yeah not any not any um, nerdy, stupid stuff like that. Um I'm not saying that that's bad, but <laughs> you know what I mean. Like you just like someone just played, you know, um that was the thing that people have done for hundreds of years. That they pull out the violin, they pull out the banjo, they pull out, um, uh, gosh, what's the country version of the violin? Um, the fiddle or whatever. The yeah, fiddle. like, <laughs> and you would sing like your like songs of like your culture, of your country, of things like had meaning that told stories of who you were and where you're from, or you know, or with like um, me and all my friends. I remember on Easter back in 2012, I think. Uh, we just got a guitar out and started um, singing a whole bunch like ninety songs, and it was so much fun. And like when we go see when we go see um, movies like like Endgame, when we binge watch TV shows, what's the what are like what's the opportunity cost of that? Is it just this yeah, this state know. of this like e- like emotional? A rest that again because I don't I don't think going to end game is wrong in and of itself. But when that's all when that is your cultural experience though, I really enjoyed yeah. the MCU films a whole heck of a lot more when we were actually analyzing them and talking about their like themes and stuff. I enjoyed yeah. that way more than it was just like then Thor has huge pecs and blew up this thing. Uh, and there's that girl's and there's that girl's tights like there's her uh, tight uh, tight stomach that's awesome you know or something like that like um, <laughs> it's just way, like I just um, I worry like I wonder if the Catholic response is that like maybe we do kind of have to just reject this stuff yeah. that maybe like there's a little bit of a Benedict option thing of just like not even but just saying like I. Not like reject, that's the wrong word, but, but just being, you know, um, I'm going to be careful with how much of this I actually partake in. Yeah, I, uh, whenever I talk to teens, I, I remind them, did you know that literally for thousands of years, if you wanted to hear music, you had to make it or go to someone who made it? And now we put in earbuds, the ones that was definitive of cultural experience and community life, music, celebration funerals right all of that stuff worship is now a soundtrack of music that i will not remember in a year pumped into my ears through isolating earbuds as i walk down the hall of my school or drive to work 
that the consumption of music is just another consumption, just another consumable. And I think about that as like, you know, we used to play music together. Now I consume it alone. If you don't think that's culture changing and significant, you don't understand what culture is. And then even though we have access to far more of it, I don't know if people are like me, but I end up consuming almost the exact same thing. But then you look at the Irishman and you realize, like, but this type of movie probably doesn't work in theaters. You know, not, not anymore. anymore. Not, not anymore. Any- it did. It did. It did. Uh, the, the line from Scorsese, where does it? He said, uh, Netflix stepped in and made no demands. There was no interference. And then he said, they don't want to make the pictures we want to make. No one out there. And he means the major studios. And he said that on an interview with CBS. They were like, you know, what, what's unique about this movie? And he's like, Netflix doesn't care. Like, they want us to make the movie that we want to make. They want us to make a movie where Al Pacino got lost in Hoffa, right, in the character of Jimmy Hoffa. And Al Pacino says that. He was like, yeah, I, I lost myself in that role. I loved playing the role of Jimmy Hoffa. And I thought that was, thought that was awesome. The, the most, honestly, my favorite part was probably Al Pacino, though. I'm oh, sorry, Al Pacino. Um, did, uh, Joe, Joe Pesci. Pesci. Joe Pesci as the old, um, it's, just, it's a different kind of Joe Pesci. Much more reserved. He's a phenomenal actor. Yeah. He's a phenomenal yeah, he actor. And, and that was one of the number one comments. People are like, Joe Pesci, you're expecting him to be like the dude in Goodfellas yeah. or in uh, Casino. You're expecting him to be that because that's the last time Pesci, De Niro, and Scorsese were all together. But he's not. He's not the, you know, what, you think I'm funny? Right? He's not yeah. that guy. How the f- am I funny? And because he's not that guy, the the whole movement with that was – he had what everyone described as a quiet intimidation, whereas all of his other characters are so damn explosive and all that stuff. Um, and the oh, there was this amazing quote. Oh, this one reviewer that I like a lot, Grace Randolph. I don't know if you ever heard of her. I think so. She does a lot of comic book stuff. She does a ton of like quick take reviews on stuff. I love her movie reviews because I tend to agree with a lot of it. But she, which so thus the echo chamber, but. She made this really interesting point, and I want to get your feedback on this. Because of the computers they used to de-age De Niro and Pacino, in particular, De Niro is in almost the entire movie, um, because of the computers, right? So all the stuff that they did, it made it cost millions more. Mm-hmm. But she made this great point. She said, you know, I'm a little conflicted about this uh, de-aging cinema stuff. And he said... Though it's amazing how the de-aging allowed De Niro to act in this movie, it also, he said, if this, she said, if this was available in the 1960s, you guess who wouldn't have had a movie career? Robert De Niro, because he played the younger Don, uh, Don Corleone mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in Godfather 2. And that was his huge breakout role. Yeah. Um, and because of that, no, that came out before his, his big one was, um, was means was um, mean street. But like, but, but yes, I mean, well, it certainly helped. I mean, he wasn't um, nominated for an Oscar, I think, but I think he was nominated. I think he, he's either um, nominated or he won for Godfather Part Two. Sorry. Anyways, go on. No, that was her point. And I just thought that was really fascinating that the very thing that drove up the cost that made Paramount reject it 
is the de-aging process because that costs like 50 million but it was going to be so integral to the story of de niro's character and taking him from soldier to soldier uh hitman uh, what do we do you paint houses yeah and i do my own carpentry too i love that line so with the whole de-aging process i agree but there's also kind of this element of uh those other roles are out there so i'm, I'm not it, it's i don't know if it's because it's um sorry i'm real tired here it's getting late uh they still move and they actually had people try to yeah coach them on things on like their posture and their and their like body movement and there are times when they're when they look like they are in their 50s but they are um, but like their body language is guys who are in their 70s they can't bend as yeah. far they can't like <laughs> win like he throws a gun into and this is a uh, Robert De Niro when he th- when he throws a gun into the river at some point in time like it just like looks like a really old dude, not someone who's in like like middle of life, even though that's what it so. Yeah, they said they de-aged their whole body and they had the posture guys, but there was <laughs> the, Scorsese told this story where um, they filmed the this famous speech of Pacino's of Hoffman's right or Hoffa. Uh, and Pacino did it once straight through and they filmed it from one angle and they was like, Oh my gosh, that was amazing. And then they went to film it from a different angle and he does it all again and they film it and they're like, Oh my gosh, that was spot on perfect. And then Scorsese goes, okay, I want to take these cameras because they have to, every camera unit has three cameras to do the de-aging stuff. And he said, okay, we're going to go over here oh my gosh. and we're going to get the yeah. wide angle shot. And then one of his, I don't know, directors, whatever, comes over to him and goes, I, I don't think we can do that. He's like, what are you talking about? He goes, well, at the end of the scene, he stands up. He kind of jumps up. And he goes, yeah. And he goes, he's a 78-year-old man. And he's like, what, what are you talking about? He's like, he's supposed to be 49 in the movie. He stands like a 78. Can you believe Pacino's 78 years old? He's supposed to stand like a 70, or he's supposed to stand like a 49-year-old, but he's 79. He can't do it. And he goes, uh, are you going to tell him that, or am I going to tell him? So he goes over to Pacino, and he goes, okay, Pacino, here's the deal. You're 78. You're- <laughs> hey, Al Pacino. <laughs> Al, how are we going to do this? He said, um, he walked over to him, and he said, listen, I know this is going to be difficult, but you need to stand up like a 49-year-old, and he goes, oh, oh, okay, okay, okay. Let's do okay. it again. <laughs> yeah, Okay. And he goes, and he, he will do it again. And he goes, and they reshoot the whole scene again, and then he jumps up, and they end the scene. He yells, cut, and then uh, <laughs> Pacino, everyone's kind of quiet, waiting for Pacino, and he goes, because he was supposed to stand up like he was, quote, a 49-year-old, and he goes, um, 64? <laughs> like <laughs> I got that low and that's about it. And everyone busts out laughing. They're like, close enough. <laughs> We're done. <laughs> that's actually pretty funny. I know. Isn't that a great story? I watched Bring me my cocaine. <laughs> I watched four hundred uh reviews and interviews <laughs> with Scorsese, De Niro, all of them, just so I could talk intelligibly about this with you, even though I haven't seen it. It's a fascinating movie. Like I, I, I honestly, I think it'd be a fun thing to do with Catching Foxes, um, ruins of movies on. Yeah, and I think we should do it with our audience. Tell our audience to go out, uh, to stay in and watch it when it comes on Netflix, and then we'll do a big thing and we'll do a, a fun Patreon thing. Yeah, it's really, um, 
yeah, yeah, it's something else. Like I, this is the thing about this is when you know you saw a good movie, even if you didn't agree with it. When it just sticks with you, you just can't stop thinking about. It. Like when I left, the only thing that I could um, think was. I want to see this again, and I want to listen to every podcast review on this movie because this was something else. Yeah. So, I mean, honestly, right. that's um, how I felt about the Joker. Like when I saw Joker, yeah. oh, I was yeah. like, I yep. want every critic. I want to hear it all. And and like, what sucks about all of this is, like, I wish we could have our cake and eat it too. Like, I want something like the Joker, but then I want um, movies to be normal again. Like, I, I want yeah. uh, the movie theater yeah. experience to be to be normal again, but. The weird part is, I don't think it was ever really normal at any point in time in our life. Because yeah. we've just grown up in this blockbuster culture. Right. Where they, these things have to be, um, you know, now they're billion. I mean, these things, like, these movies are industries, industries in and of themselves. Right. There's an endgame industry. It is a billion-dollar industry. That might be a little, a little bit bold, but like it is a like it is. Yeah, no, it is. I, I mean, mean, how many Marvel like eight Marvel films made a billion dollars? Like the MCU has probably has like a bigger GDP than some countries. You know, you know, <laughs> like it's crazy. That is crazy. Oh my goodness! All right, all right. Well, we need to wrap this Did show up, Luke. Thank you so much for a great, great two-hour conversation. That was good. Yeah. I think we got some legwork out of that. And Martin Scorsese, please come on the podcast. <laughs> all right, all right. I'll do it. How about Al Pacino? <laughs> I will come on your podcast. We'll talk about it. Huge ass. Okay. Uh, <laughs> all right, special thanks to CatholicSocial.media for sponsoring this show. Thanks to all of our friends at... Uh, Patreon for the great um, things on respect as as well. That was awesome. You guys are great. Love you. He's supposed to be 49. I said he's supposed to be, you know, Al's 78. Yeah. <laughs> and he had the little dots on his face and everything, but when he gets up, he's supposed to be 49. Ah. <laughs> and so I looked at them and I said, you tell him. <laughs> <laughs> It's my first day with the net, 40 years, and I got to go tell him, hey, you know, come on out. Al, we need you to spring right, up. Come on, spring up there. So he, they said, all right, I'll tell him. Okay, I'll go. Is everything okay? I said, yeah, Al, it's great. You're terrific. I said, the only thing is, you're supposed to be 49. He goes, oh, God. Oh. All right, all right, we're going to try. Gary went in there, get them all set up. Okay, ready? And action. One more time. And uh, we do it. And I look around the guys, and uh, Al looks up, and he says, 62. <laughs> Seems like a fair compromise. We're all sort of laughing. 